Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Sarah, as I do every time I come on my shows, uh, without this now, I've been at this in excess of 11 years, 625 interviews with authors. I thank my listeners because without their support, continued support, uh, it just wouldn't be happening. Um, And just the numbers of listeners now... Uh, that tune in from around the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're coming in from all over the place, China, India. So it's just great to see people listening to these podcasts and and learning more. And today, joining me from Minneapolis, Minnesota, is Sarah Taylor. And Sarah has a new book out called Filter Shift, How Effective People See the World. Um, Sarah, good day to you. How are you doing? I am fabulous today, Greg. How are you today? I'm doing really well, and it's a pleasure having you on the show. And your little powerful book holds a real punch because it is about the way we filter and create our biases. And I am going to let our listeners know a tad bit about you. Sarah is the president and founder of Deep Sea Consulting. And by the way, for all those listeners who want to get to her website, Go to deep, D-E-E-P-S-E-E, consulting.com. We'll have that link in the blog entry as well. And she is a nationally recognized speaker and consultant specialized in the areas of leadership, diversity, and organizational effectiveness. She's got over 25 years of experience. Um, She balances her real-life anecdotes with research-based theories to, to deliver for her reader what she delivers for her clients. Well, it is interesting, you know, because I don't think, Sarah, many people give a lot of thought to the way they have prejudice and bias and opinions and all that. And, you know, you start your book with this great story about Governor Bill Richardson, who was long planned to go meet with all of these people with Saddam Hussein. What did you, why did you utilize this particular story to exemplify the concept behind filter shift as you started this book? Well, first of all, it's, I think it's a fabulous story. It's an intriguing story, but it also, and I'll, and I'll tell a, a quick snippet of it here too, but it also shows how even very successful people aren't their most effective because they're not able to filter shift. And someone very successful like Bill Richardson, heck, he was the governor of New Mexico, a representative to Mexico. He was a secretary to the UN. I'm we're talking very successful. And the story actually is about him when he was sent by President Clinton to negotiate with Saddam Hussein, this is many years ago, and Saddam Hussein, Iraq had taken four Americans hostage. And like I said, an intriguing story because it talks about his preparation and him crossing the desert to get there and coming into a room of full of Republican guards and, uh, you know, all of the suspense of, of the danger involved in the situation. And not only that, along with the fact that he's successful, he spent three months preparing for this meeting with three staff members, all of them preparing for this meeting. And yet, It was over in a matter of seconds with Saddam Hussein slamming his hand on the table and walking out the door. And it was all because 
he was operating in an ineffective stage when it comes to his ability to filter shift. He couldn't see the complexities of the differences around him. So and this is where we can fall back sometimes. He kept thinking, okay, what would I want if I were in Saddam's shoes? And what we don't realize when we say something like that is that we're still looking from our perspective. What would I want? What would I do if I were in that situation versus what are the filters of the other person and how are they seeing this situation? And so with that preparation, he kept thinking, you know, one of the most important things I would want if I were him, I'm a leader of a small country, but then then here comes the powerhouse of the world. I wouldn't want them to be all formal and heavy handed. So I want to be real informal. So what he did was he went in, uh, crossed this room full of Republican guards with their swords, and behind them another row of guards, crossed the room to Saddam Hussein, sat down in his informal way, kind of leaning back in his chair, crossed his leg, his, his ankle across his knee, and that's when Saddam slammed his hand on the table and walked out. And Bill Richardson thinking, oh my gosh, now am I going to the death chambers? What, what's, what's happening now? And what had happened, what he wasn't aware of, was how he had offended Saddam because he had shown the sole of his shoe. Right up there, right up front for Saddam to see, which would be the equivalent, Greg, I don't know if you know, but that's the equivalent in Arab countries of if, we, if Saddam would have sent an emissary to the, the Oval Office to meet with President Clinton and that emissary from, from Iraq would have come in and just flipped off, just raised the middle finger right to President Clinton. That's what he did. Even with all kinds of preparation, if he would have just had that icing on the cake of being able to filter shift, he would have had a more effective interaction. It's interesting because, you know, after all that time of preparing and all those things, it only takes one small little thing like that. And I know you mm -hmm. lead diversity inclusion workshops, so that's, you know, it's, it's a big thing. The f one of the things that you speak about in the book are these false prescriptions we write for ourselves. And you outline them in the book. Actually, you do it very early in the book. Can you speak with the listeners about these false prescriptions that we've basically mm -hmm. developed? Yeah, think of them as myths. Myths that keep us from paying attention to this. And the this being what we sometimes call uh, cultural competence, sometimes folks will call it just general effectiveness. Um, for me, I use that term of, of being able to filter shift, being able to be our most effective, particularly in our interactions across difference. And I just want to pause in saying that. I mean, folks need to think about it. Aren't all of our interactions interactions across difference. So it gets down to pretty much every interaction. And so these are myths that keep us from developing that effectiveness, particularly, again, interacting across difference. So one of them is, you know, I'm really comfortable with people that are different from me. Uh, someone may say, you know, oh, yeah, my best friend is black. My next door neighbor is gay. My mom has lived with a disability all of her life. I'm super comfortable. No problem at all. Well, when does comfort 
equal competence. Like I say, you know, I am completely comfortable holding my high school clarinet, but you do not want to hear me play it. I'm not competent in playing it. So comfort doesn't equal competence. The other one that we think about a lot, that I hear people say a lot, with the way they'll start it is by saying, you know, my kids, or kids in general these days, you know, I think they're a whole lot more competent than I am or than I ever was because, look, they're exposed to so many more differences. They go to school and they have the exposure of kids that are so different from them and it's just around them all the time. And there again, I say, in what other areas would we say that exposure equals competence? If that were the case, we wouldn't even need a school system. Let's just establish a math guru center and I'll just go drop off my kids with the math guru. They'll just kind of hang out next to the math guru for an hour and then there you go. Voila, they're going to be competent in math. It seems ridiculous that we would think that. But the reality is the reason why we think that when it comes to interacting across difference is that we forget or we don't realize that that actually is a competence as well. It's interesting how you how you say that because actually looking at how we put these filters on, you know, I always say that we live in a world of making stuff up and then we begin to believe the stuff that we made up. And it's those <laughs> biases that actually get created as a result of making this stuff up, uh, as you talk about, which leads me to this next question about diversity and inclusion. You know, so much of your work is about diversity inclusion, and you work for these large companies helping them with, with this. How has this kind of work helped you to see how we create these biases and how it affects the work that we do in the workplace? Oh, it's amazing. And I think that's one of the startling realities for folks once they start to really dig into this, uh, this area. And the first piece is just a knowledge of the fact that it's, it's our unconscious filters that are in control. I mean, if you just think about the question that I ask a lot of folks is, okay, right now, real quick, tell me, what's your next thought going to be? And there's a long pause, and there's a long pause, and there's like dumbfounded looks, and we don't know what our next thought is going to be. And just that, just a, an understanding that that's the, the reality is very unsettling. And the reason why we don't know what our next thought is going to be is because that next thought is created in our unconscious. So we know that from brain uh, science and particularly from uh, Benjamin Libet, who, who discovered this for us a number of years ago, that it's actually our unconscious that decides what our conscious is going to think next. So our unconscious gathers up information. And what, what information does our unconscious have? Only information from our, from my past experiences. That's all that my unconscious has. Right. And so when you talk about, you know, we kind of make it up, it's, well, you know, it's true to me. It's true to my reality. It's true to my experiences. And so when my unconscious filters then pop that up into my conscious and it's true to my past experiences, true to my reality, then it's true, period. 
and I believe it, mm-hmm. whether it is actually true or not. And that's how we can get stuck. And I think, you know, back to your question, I think the, the, the flip of that question is kind of why don't we pay more attention? And I think the real piece there is, frankly, it's blame and shame and guilt. Because, you know, and let's just, first of all, let's throw all that out the window. We don't need it. It's not helpful. But many of us associate bias with, okay, bias is bad. And I, I, I'm not bad. I, I'm, I'm nice. I want to, I want to be friendly. I certainly don't want to be biased. So I, I don't have bias in. Well, actually, since we all have an unconscious, we all have bias. We all have filters that are deciding for us. So accepting that, acknowledging that, and accepting that accountability to the fact that I do have bias, it's my filters that are deciding, then I'm accountable. And it's not just I'm going to kind of go about my day. I actually need to be accountable for what my filters are telling me, and I need to be able to check them. And when necessary, I need to be able to shift them. Mm-hmm. Now, you... You state in the book, and I think this is a really important point for the listeners to understand, you know, we know a lot about um, our neurobiology makeup, or I should say our the neurochemistry mm-hmm. of our brains today. Neuroscientists mm-hmm. know more than, than they have before about how these synapses fire and how they hardwire. And you're saying, yes, mm-hmm. we have hardwired these elements that are actually creating these prejudices and biases and so on. And these are coming from the subconscious, which is, you know, it, it just doesn't have that filter. But you discuss something you refer to as this universal values. Can you discuss with our listeners how we could actually reprogram those brains, those synapses to refire in a different way, and the importance of what you refer to here as universal values? Yeah, well, actually, the universal values and the concept of universal values, uh, many times we hold on to that when we're interacting with someone that's different from us, when we've got a misunderstanding, we hold on to this sense of, okay, there's a universal value here. We all want respect. We all want love, honor, honesty, truth, whatever the the fill-in-the-blank universal value. And so then what I think is, okay, Greg, I know you, uh, you want respect just as much as I want respect. And so therefore we're just going to get along. But what I don't stop to think, and I don't continue that thought to say, okay, underneath that universal value, your filters are defining that very differently than my filters and your filters are looking for a different behavior to attach to that value than my filters. So if I just stop at the fact that we have these universal values, I'm missing out on the complexity. So just think about one, you know, like I said, respect, you know, we, we, we say that a lot, particularly like, like you said, I work a lot with folks in the workplace. And so that's something you hear a lot in the workplace of, okay, we all want a respectful workplace. And I would agree. I think most folks, they enter the workplace and yeah, they want it to be respectful. But I don't know, Greg, are you an extrovert or are you an introvert? Do you know if you're an extrovert or an introvert? I definitely am an extrovert. Yeah, that's me too. So let's say that we work together and both of us extroverts 
and uh, you come to me and you say, uh, you know, uh, um, Sally, you know, she's driving me crazy because I, I, we've got this project and I just really need to talk it through with her. We've got these huge problems that we've just got to talk through. And, and, you know, not only that, you know, I come in in the morning and, and uh, you know, we've got to connect. We've got to be good teammates. And she doesn't even want to talk. She just closes her door and she just doesn't even, she doesn't even want to be a team member. And I can hear that as an extrovert and say, oh, my gosh, yeah, oh, that's not a respectful workplace. Well, you know what? Let's just institute across the board. We're going to have every morning stand-up meetings because that's respectful. And and then we're going to make sure that all of our project teams, you know, that we have these talk-through meetings where we really go through and talk through the challenges that we've got with the meetings. And, and you know, again, because that's respectful. Well, that's only respectful for the extrovert and the introvert would define a respectful workplace very differently. So I need to be able to see that when I look at that universal value, I see it through the filter of extroversion. And I need to understand that, that my filter clouds how I see that universal value and that someone else will have a very different filter potentially that could cloud it in a different way. So that means well, we're, the fact that we're all running around, we're all running around with these different filters based on our prior mm-hmm. experiences and obviously our subconscious, which is, you know, kind of yes. on autopilot, right? Um, yes. A lot right. of this is autopilot and you're trying to help people actually take some time to look at how that autopilot's working. Now, you mm-hmm. you make a little statement in the book that the major consequences of these unconscious acceptance of the judgment provided by automatic filters, whatever the source, is that so many of us end up with these very strong opinions. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree mm-hmm. that happens. What do you recommend for eliminating or at least reducing those filters that automatically come up that we have um, that are being automatic used. How do you help us question before we actually Mm -hmm. act? Yeah, that's the thing. And we do have to question because we can't eliminate. Our unconscious is what's in control. We aren't in control consciously. So we've got to be able to, when they pop up, we've got to be able to question them, recognize them, uh, not dismiss them and think, oh, no, I'm not going to think that because uh, that would be bad. So I'm not even going to think that. Well, that to me, I kind of think about it, uh, those filters that want to pop up. It's just like that proverbial uh, beach ball that wants to pop up to the surface level. And as much as you want to push it down underneath water, it wants to push up. Same is true of our filters because our brains are doing this where they say, okay, this is what lines up. This is what makes sense. So this is our job. Pop up that filter. And it's going to keep popping it up until we acknowledge it, recognize it. And as you said, question it. So one quick strategy to help folks with this is to think about and to reflect after a particular interaction where you've had a misunderstanding or at least where an expectation wasn't met. And why do I say expectation? Because our unconscious actually creates our expectation. So in a sense, when we kind of trace back an expectation, we get a link back into that unconscious filter. 
So let's say um, I'm in interaction with someone and they do something that I don't expect. That's a fabulous opportunity for me afterwards to say, okay, uh, I'm going to reflect on that and I'm going to really think about what filters created that expectation. So what came up for me to say that this is what they should do? This is what they should say. This is how they should act. And how of that comes from my past experiences? And then actually question that and say, you know, is, is that a true filter? The second piece then, after I've looked at that filter and I've questioned it, tracing it back from the expectation, is that I need to think about intent. And this is something, too, that I think we don't, we talk about it in general, but I don't think we really honestly believe it. So I ask folks a lot, you know, I I haven't done any research on this. Um, I'd love to do some research, but what I've done is ask probably tens of thousands of individuals now in my presentations, um, see if they agree with me. Um, My belief is that the vast majority of us enter the workplace every day, enter our interactions with our family and friends every day with positive intent. We actually want to contribute. We want to have positive interactions and positive relationships. And when I ask that, I always get head nods. So if everyone is entering the workplace with positive intent, then Why do we have any misunderstandings at all? Well, it's because we haven't built the ability to match that positive intent with an equally positive impact. And we don't know how our action is going to impact others unless we get to the level of filters, because it's the filters that will decide how others are impacted. So let me just real quick go back to that. If we take that exercise again, if I've traced back that expectation and I've realized, okay, well, uh, there must be different filters here, then I take that next step of I'm going to assume positive intent. I'm going to assume positive intent on their part. So then all of these things that I said of they're rude, they're disrespectful, they're, they're not a hard worker, they're whatever, whatever, well, then I've got to question all of that too. And I've got to actually take a look at it then from their perspective, from their filters. That takes me to a whole new place. Now, what about, I know this is kind of an off-the-wall question, but I used to work with a lot of kids with autism. And they say in the workplace Mm -hmm. today, you know, Mm -hmm. that some of these bright minds, these computer programmer people, they're on the spectrum. You know, obviously in the olden days, we didn't even understand a lot about the spectrum. But I spent a couple of years raising lots of money for a school that works with kids with autism to build a new school. And I would see it all the time. Mm -hmm. What, what recommendation do you have for these people that actually there's a lot of them out there. They don't have any filters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because um, I was just talking about this uh, the other day with a client and actually looking at, it's a, it's a fabulous example, again, of how what's happening for us unconsciously is determining how we're interacting. And we can't just take for granted that there's a universal reaction. And, mm-hmm. what, and the, what we were really talking about actually was a smile. So a smile, 
if I smile at you, Greg, it's, it's some kind of sign, right? That, that I'm okay. You're okay. That Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm somehow pleased. I'm somehow happy. And, you know, I grew up with this, uh, basically very ingrained in me. A smile is a very important thing. And a smile is something that should always be on your face. Something that, you know, we always want to see you smiling, that sort of a thing. Well, what about for folks that are autistic? That that smile isn't something that necessarily it, it comes from them of to say, oh, yeah, I'm happy. I'm going to smile. That's a, that's a physical reason, essentially, why they are not smiling. Uh, another example, and I'm using smile really as is the, the piece here. Um, the client that I was talking with actually had a friend whose son was born without the facial muscles to smile. So physically also could not smile. So let's just take that situation. If I don't stop to think about my filters and I smile at someone, they don't smile back, then it's, oh, well, well, geez, what's their problem? Well, (laughs) they're, they're kind of rude. Geez, well, they're, they're not very friendly. And that's all what my filters are saying. That may not at all be the actual situation. If I'm working with someone that's autistic, I can't expect the same emotional reactions that I give. Uh, or it could even literally be, like I said, for someone that physically doesn't even have the muscles to smile. So here right. I am making all kinds of assumptions about someone that, again, may not be true at all. Right. And it's, it's, it is something that, you know, again, uh, we need to be, we need to question. I think the only way to actually do it is to question our action, right? Hopefully you're not Mm -hmm. doing it afterwards. You're questioning it before the action actually occurs so that you're not offending somebody or you're not doing something. And you have these stages of effectiveness interacting across difference. Mm-hmm. And how we move mm-hmm. through those stages. And you've got a great little graph and chart in the book in color uh, for my listeners. Mm-hmm. Can you briefly explain those, um, I think it was five stages, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, of, yes. of effectiveness that people, to actually get you more effective at this. So maybe you could explain that to our yeah, listeners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Five stages. And again, they're developmental. So think first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. You can't go into a kindergarten classroom and hand them a fifth grade diploma or expect them to do fifth grade work. Same thing is true here, but with the effectiveness, the ability to interact across difference. So the first stage is where we're actually oblivious to even easy to see differences. And I'm missing things uh, that are very obvious. The second stage, I see those things that are easy to see in differences. I see color. I see uh, gender. I see easy to see differences, and I judge them. So it's an us-them, good-bad kind of dynamic. Then when we develop from that, we go to a place where, okay, we know it's not good to do this us-them, good-bad thing, so let's just pretend we're all us. We're just all one big happy family and, you know, we're, I'm just going to focus on the fact that we're all alike. There's commonality across all humanity. 
Well, those first three stages are the stages where we're not able to be our most effective. We've got to cross the hump to the fourth stage where I can see that my filters are in control. And I acknowledge the power of those filters. I acknowledge the power of essentially our unconscious. And I can see them when they're at play. And then the final step is where I'm able to actually adjust my behavior. And I'm able to filter shift because I see that shifting my behavior allows me to be more effective in this particular situation. Yeah. And I think that this, your graph and your chart that you give in the book is so important because so if people would go through those steps or at least use that as a way to shift their perspective, what they might find is there would be a lot less faux pas that they would make in the workplace, mm -hmm. uh, in the relationships in life, in everything, because they're mm -hmm. actually thinking it through. I mean, I, my biggest example here, most recent, is the president of United Airlines. You know, he might have thought yeah. a little differently about this man being kind of drug off the plane before he started blaming him and then came back and saw the stock of the company plummet to, you know, <laughs> right. all time lows. Right. So, you right. know, the repercussions right. of this kind of stuff because of how quickly media moves. If you're, if you're a leader of any type uh, out there listening to this podcast, you're definitely going to want to uh, look at what Sarah's talking about here uh, it's mm -hmm. a great little book. Sarah, your your organization is Deep Sea Consulting, and you've got this mm -hmm. acronym C. I think we'll yes. kind of sum up this interview by letting the listeners know what the SEE stands for. Yeah, SEE is essentially related to our levels of observation and when our unconscious takes over. So the first level of observation is C. I actually uh, see things objectively. It's what's actually there. Then it goes down to the unconscious and our unconscious takes over and our unconscious then goes to the second step, which is the, that E, which is explain. And our unconscious says, okay, I'm supposed to make sense of what we see. So here's that explanation. And the filter pops up with an explanation. And then our unconscious goes even another step and says, okay, now I'm supposed to evaluate. That's the second E, evaluate. So here's a judgment mm -hmm. that we're going to place on what we see. So here pops up the judgment. So I show, as for an example, uh, in a training that I do, I show up a, a picture and ask folks to describe it. And it's a picture of six people. And most folks, though, talk about it as a family and talk about all the things that they're doing and so forth. All of those other descriptions are coming from our filters. The only description that stops at that first level of C is six people. But when people see all kinds of other things, those are the things that are coming from the unconscious. I see a happy family. I see an African family. I see a poor family. I see all of these things and making up all of these stories like you were talking about. I make things up and then I believe it. It's actually my filters that have made it up and I believe it because it matches my experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on inside personal growth and, and spending some time with our listeners talking about your new book, filter shift, how effective people see the world. 
Uh, for my listeners, this is not a difficult book to read. Um, she intentionally made this so that you could read this on a plane flight from, uh, you know, like an hour and a half long. But it is jam-packed full of really good content to get you start to question, you know, your filters. Um, and I really believe that, you know, like she said, we're operating in the unconscious man mind, and these filters determine how we see um, ourselves and others. And it's so important mm-hmm. that we all uh, look at that mm-hmm. and that we don't just react. We take time yeah. to consider it um, and yeah. use your steps. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on. Where do you want to direct people to go to learn more about you? I know that I said at the beginning of the podcast and we will have a link to that. Um, we'll be going to Sarah's website, which is deep C D E E P S E E consulting.com. We'll have a link to that. Um, we'll also have a link to Amazon to where the book is as well for all of those who are listening And Sarah, thanks for being on. Any parting words for our listeners? Yeah, well, also just to let folks know that we also have the Filter Shift uh, website. So filtershift.com. So they can find uh, not only more information there, but there are a ton of free resources. So things you can take and do on your own to start building this ability. Oh, beautiful. We'll put a link to Filter Shift as well into our blog entries listeners so look out for that as well sarah a pleasure having you on inside personal growth and speaking about a really important topic uh, not only just in the workplace but really you can use this with your children you can use this with your wife you can mm-hmm. use this with your uh, anything because this is applicable mm-hmm. across all planes of our existence so pleasure yeah, having you right. on that's right Thank you, Greg. I very much appreciate it. And thanks to your listeners, too, today for joining us. 